I'm Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio. This edition of Fangraphs Audio features lead prospect analyst Kylan McDaniel. That's lead prospect analyst Kylan McDaniel making his weekly Friday appearance. In this case, on a Friday. That's his weekly Friday appearance on a Friday. In what follows, Kylan McDaniel endeavors to analyze all prospects. In particular, Jean Mancata. Jean Mancata, perhaps a poor pronunciation of what that is. He's the Cuban defector, currently living in Guatemala City, much sought after. He discusses that. No fewer than one Reds prospect. The Reds prospect in question is Ben Lively. And also this question of building a library. And this is the thing we address first. The idea of building a library if you're a scout. That is a sort of database in your human brain of players who might serve as comparables to the players you're seeing in the present. All of that is to, to follow. Before that, of course, uh, as he does for many episodes, Kyle McDaniel has provided a musical interlude. Uh, so that's also about to come. So what you find here is the end of this introduction, a musical interlude supplied by Kyle McDaniel, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, and then a conversation with that same person right after that. It's Fangraphs Audio, again, featuring Kyle McDaniel. Thank you. No, I'm not going, but that sounds good. I should have signed up for that. Should have gone to that. Oh, that's why the, the Eno was arranging some sort of beer thing. Because they yes. have all those breweries there. It's I, I didn't realize this, but somebody told me it's like the uh, apparently like the independent brewery capital of the U.S. Which I don't. I mean, I didn't really know what the capital was for that. I, I wouldn't have guessed San Diego, but apparently that's what it is. Yeah, I, th- I think that is the case. There are a couple of uh, hot spots, actually, kind of scattered throughout the states. I believe uh, Asheville, North Carolina. I would have said Austin and Portland, although maybe that's just a hipster area. But I think that it crosses over. For yeah, both. I think there's that, and then. Uh, Surprisingly or not, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Didn't know that one. Yeah, home of uh, Founders Brewery. And maybe a couple others. Founders, though, was pretty excellent. Uh, yeah, all uh, all scattered, really, all the different corners. I don't know if there's an equivalent in the Northeast, although we have some uh, microbreweries here, too. Anyway, beer is good. We can all agree on that. No, no debate. I saw someone uh, complained in the comments from the last one that all we did was talk about whether to use the word sucks, but the title of the podcast said it was about the White Sox. But in fact, it was about us arguing about the word sucks. So now I'll complain about beer. (laughs) Yeah, I actually thought that that was uh, perfectly real. I think it brings up a point, which is – well, here's the question. Uh, We've discussed this, this idea of building a library. Um, And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to – uh, to uh, examine that in print. Ha- have you done that at Fangraphs? Um, I guess not explicitly, no. I feel like I've mentioned it, but not in the comprehensive way that I tend to tackle topics that I write about. <laughs> right. But so do you, I mean, do, do you mind uh, just talking about it for a second? Well, we're definitely going to talk about the Cuban. We're going to talk the Cuban in a moment. But, oh, he's coming on this week? Yeah, we're, we're going to, yeah, we will mention it though. You've written, what, two or three posts about him in the last week at this point. Um, so it seems relevant, but yeah, I got a funny G chat from a friend in the front office, and he goes, "Hey, do you think our team's going to sign Moncada? He's the Cuban guy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. <laughs> Apparently, he's familiar with your work. This guy, he likes to make fun of me. This guy. Oh, oh, I see. He's making yeah. Uh, let let me say this. Uh, so, will, will you just briefly, uh, maybe 
define what you mean by library and, and why it's important? Yeah. Um, so, all right. So here's actually good. Uh, There's more good timing on your part because I had uh, I had a conversation with a we'll say a important scouting executive that narrows down to about seventy people, mm-hmm. um, and I was telling him that I found with the mostly college or just out of college guys that write for us on the prospect end and other people that don't write for us that sort of fit that description, I found it's pretty easy within. Anywhere from two to five years, depending on how many games you're seeing and how quickly you can pick things up, uh, to be able to watch a pitcher and say, like, oh, that's a 55 curveball. And the best scout in the world could sit next to you and be like, yes, I would also say it's a 55. And to be able to do that, like, 80 or 90% of the time. Um, and the 10% you disagree on would usually just be by, you know, one tick. Like, it wouldn't be a huge disagreement. I feel like getting that and then also I guess some of the stuff that I taught you about how to do like raw power and then once you get the feel for the stopwatch you have a scale sitting right there in front of you like if you say the five hitting tools and then the you know three or four pitches and command there's like 10 main tools just using sort of stats and context clues and scales that are already in front of you and stuff you can pick up after watching you know a couple hundred games you can get pretty close to writing about the same or doing the same, writing the same numbers a very experienced scout would put on a report. Uh, and the scout agreed with me. And I said, I feel like the difference is, um, like, like when I went to go watch the, uh, the July two kids for next year. So they're 15 and, uh, 15, sometimes 16 year olds. I hadn't seen any of them before. I, the couple I had seen just sort of like take batting practice. I had nothing of note though. Uh, didn't know who the good players were, didn't know anything, and just sat there and watched them for three days. And then at the end, I was like, this guy's going to get $2 million. So I go, yeah, and I go, $2 million? He goes, yeah, like, you know, somewhere from one to three. Yeah, it's about right. And that's the thing that the guy in the second or third year, he, he has trouble doing that. Mm-hmm. And part of it is because when you have no context, it's just raw scouting, and you have to know, oh, you, when you saw a guy do this, well, he's 15, so you can ignore that when he's 15. If he's 23 in AA, you can't ignore that thing that he does at the plate. Also, hitting is harder to judge than pitching because a lot of it, as I've explained uh, many times on here, is, oh, that swing looks like a big leaguer or, the, you know, you can just tell there's something that's not quite there and it'll take you a few BP swings to point out what it is. Whereas, if you, you know, you have some guy that's really good at gifts and breaking down video and stuff, you may not know that's average bat speed as opposed to 55 or 60 bat speed. He just knows, like, oh, that's pretty good, and he's making contact. But he's doesn't have any stats to look at. It's a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, I'm, I'm now talking more than I did when I was talking to this guy. But the idea is you can get to up and running to hireable by a team within as little as two years, sometimes more as, you know, as many as four or five years. Uh, but the difference between that 30 year experienced guy and that three or four year guy is all of the details, uh, around that. Being able to look at a Tyler Danish with a crazy arm action and decide he's good enough. And knowing what the outlier looks like, being able to do it with no context and no stats, being able to go watch a guy in one day and get the same report you get after five days, like all of that stuff, that's the sort of art of it that takes a lifetime to figure out. That's, and then that's where the library comes in. It gets, it, like, it's much, much easier for me to do, uh, the July 2 thing I was just describing after three or four days that, like, I basically couldn't do that five years ago, even though I would technically grade the tools somewhat similarly. And, and also doing that specific thing, you need context for just what 
what the July 2 market sort of values in general and what 15-year-olds, when you're actually putting a number on them and signing them, what the things you actually look for, as opposed to an area scout may watch a 15-year-old high school sophomore and be like, oh, yeah, that's good, and just put them on a list and not think about them again. In the international world, you have to be making multi-million dollar decisions about that stuff. So you look at it a little more closely and have sort of different stuff that you, uh, that you look for. So, so yeah, that's, that's where library comes in. All the advanced stuff that makes a, the difference between an entry level scout and his boss's boss's boss, it's basically all library. Right. Right. And yeah, and that's an interesting idea. I mean, it would seem to be, uh, I I don't really want to, I don't want to invoke Malcolm Gladwell, but I am doing it. Uh, but just this is this idea of, going to appear right in front of us? The idea of 10,000 hours of, uh, right. It, yeah, and it, I, mean, I remember when that book came out, a lot of guys talked about that concept that it made sense to them because I'm, I've now been sort of in baseball in a professional capacity for about 10 years, but I've only been scouting for like, I don't know, anywhere from four to six, depending on what you want to count as full-time scouting. Mm-hmm. So some of these things, because you were saying two to five years, and some of them come after. So you're sort of, do you feel like you're sort of still in that process where uh, you're you're adding to your library? Yeah, I feel like in the last year or two, I went from competent, can get the numbers uh, to, to match an experienced guy's report, to I feel like in the last year or two, I've been able to sort of do some of those more advanced things. Well, you know, I'll watch a guy, and I don't catch myself being like, oh, it's 355 pitches, and you can kind of command it, so that means he goes in the second round. Like, I find myself like, all right, he's got all that, but let's watch, you know, how he spots it and, like, how he responds when a home run gets hit. His next five pitches is, like, high school kid. Is he locating them all? Does it seem like he's mentally tough? Uh, you know, the mechanics aren't great, or he doesn't look immediately like a shortstop, but hold on, the 30th best shortstop, is he, you know, defensively, that's still a shortstop. Is he as good as that guy? Like, you can... Another thing I said to, to this uh, scout when we were talking a few days ago was a lot of, uh, like, when you go to a showcase to go see, you know, your first look at the high school guys for the next year's draft the summer before, a lot of times you'll see a guy go play shortstop, and, you know, he's like an average, maybe 55 runner. He has enough arm to play the left side of the infield. But it, it's, like, good actions. It's fine. Uh, but almost every scout will be like, oh, yeah, he's not a shortstop. Not in the big leagues. Like, he'll leave him at short, but then he'll move. And what they're saying is, in their mind, shortstop means super flashy, super loose, super athletic. Like they're imagining Ray Ordonez in their head, but that guy's like a plus defender. It's like a you know 65 or 70 as the tool. There's plenty of guys that are 55s that are fringe to average defenders that play shortstop in the big leagues, and some of them like Johnny Peralta are actually better. They look fringy, but it turns out they're actually better than that. And that happens all the time at the. Uh, at sort of the low minors and sort of amateur levels. And that's one of those things where you can, you like I said, that first few years you can get the thing where you watch him play shortstop and you're like, oh, that's not super flashy, so that's, you know, second base or third base. But the more advanced guy will come in and be like, look at it a little closer. Like, he's always in the right spot. He's always going in the right direction. He seems to get really good reads. Like, he's got, a lot of guys talk about the internal clock. Like, he kind of knows how to time everything. Um, a lot of that stuff starts, starts entering your your discussion about players more so than, oh, it's just, it's 555s across the board, so he's a first rounder. It's like, it's, I mean, maybe, but not always. Well, one player, it, it, I, we might, I mean, if we're going to apply this maybe, and I don't want to put you on the spot, um, but you did recently write about the Cincinnati Reds. And one player who's, uh, I think, probably an interesting case study in terms of those, that area between um, what his numbers and his projections look like and also but but also what we might look like it like you're saying when you're watching a guy and trying to imagine what that means at the major league level as opposed to even just you know providing like a generic uh 
you know, or producing a generic um, major league equivalent for his minor league numbers. Uh, I, I could, uh, I think of Ben Lively, the right-hander in, in, the, in that red system, because um, Lively has uh, has uh, produced uh, some excellent numbers in the minor leagues, um, and even when he moved up to Double A this year, he wasn't. Uh, he certainly wasn't overmatched. He, he acquitted himself decently. Um, but he receives a future value grade of, from you of a 45, and none of his pitches grades out particularly well, which I'm guessing is might be one of the hints. Um, but I guess what, what, what is happening there, um, and I'm, I'm actually watching the video now for anyone who wants to watch it, it's available, um, and you're evaluating the Prospects Reds edition. Uh, what, I mean, what is it that we need to know about someone like Ben Lively, and like how does the library help in that particular context? Um, I mean, I mean – he went to UCF, so you have to like him. Okay. Right. Oh, um, wait. So wait, that's a couple guys that I've mentioned accidentally. There was another. Was it Dwight Smith Jr. or was no, he's, it? A, he's a high school guy. Darnell Sweeney. Uh, Darnell Sweeney. Yeah. Darnell Sweeney. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he went to UCF also. Uh, actually, those may be the two best UCF grads in the minors, if I had to guess. Anyway, um, Lively's a big guy. Uh, there's some. Dis- it's some sort of funk and deception, but it get, it gets counted as funk and deception as opposed to bad delivery because he can command the ball pretty well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's 90 to 93, flash of 55 slider, average changeup, average curveball. Fastball can be a little straight, but he keeps it down in the zone. Um, and sometimes the ball can flatten up in the zone, but he's gotten better about. Uh, he's one of those guys that got better in his three years at UCF, where he was, you know, kind of like a, you know, raw piece of clay, and then slowly figured out like, oh, 90-93 down in the zone is better than you know trying to blow it away, guys at ninety four up in the zone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and he may not be a um, like I would say his minor league performance was surprising. Um, so in that sense, I don't think people were expecting that. So that may be sort of a library uh, type issue where you're, you know, you would watch him pitch at UCF and be like, okay, it's, you know, 50s and 55s and it's, you know, fourth, fifth starter probably and everything looks fine. And someone goes, oh, he's going to go to the Cal League next year and he's going to completely blow everybody away. Right, right. The Cal you League is frightening. That. It's a frightening place for pitchers. Yeah, and you wouldn't have guessed that because I, I guess the – the outward main big stuff wouldn't suggest that he he's not Yasmero Petit with you know average to fringe stuff and plus command that you figure he could you know trick these guys and he's also not Archie Bradley where he'll blow everything past everybody which are kind of the two kinds of people you would expect would do that um, so yeah that may be a guy where the area scout seen him throw five times that spring he may see something I see him throw once cross checker may see him twice maybe three times. Uh, I'd say somewhere in that third to fourth time, you'd start to pick up some of that stuff and be like, oh, this guy could actually move quickly, even though after sort of the first look, the superficial uh, report wouldn't tell you that. Um, but at this point, still, he hasn't mowed down double-A and triple-A yet, so people are still looking and saying, it's no-plus pitches, it's fourth or fifth starter still, it just may get there quicker than you would expect. It feels, you know, some people thought it might be fringy below-average command, turns out it's more average, solid-average command. It's more of a slight adjustment, whereas uh, I remember, I think it was like his first two months in the Cal League, it was like unprecedented numbers. It was, you yeah. know, like no walks and 28 strikeouts and like one run or something crazy like that. And, of course, people on Twitter see that, and they're like, oh, he went in the third or fourth round. He has some stuff. He's big. This report said he hit 95. Oh, he's a huge prospect now. And it was like, yeah, sometimes it's true when that happens that something changed. It turns out nothing really changed. We just may not have adjusted for everything 
appropriately uh, in the short term. But long term, I don't think the adjustment or the, the projection is necessarily changed. But if he does what he did in the Cal League at double A AA and triple A, then maybe it will. Okay, yeah. He's an above average command guy. Maybe he could, you know, be one of those guys, uh, like, you see the lefty with some feel and you're like, oh, he's like Tom Glavin. Now, Tom Glavin's, you know, like 80 command. This guy, I'm not saying he's going to be 80 command, but one out of 100 of these guys ends up being, you know, or 200 or whatever it is, ends up being the 80 command guy where everything plays way up and he, you know, has four starter stuff that plays as a one. It's possible that's happening. I mean, I'd say it's like, you know, 1% or less chance that he's that guy. Uh, but I, I guess scouts are skeptical enough given those percentages. They have to see him continue to carve guys up to move the projection, uh, given that the stuff is still the same. Now, in terms of uh, projecting command or evaluating command, I, I know that um, I think from talking with you and maybe some other guys, I certainly uh, it seems as though the quality of the mechanics is part of it. There's effort in the delivery. It's harder for that pitcher to uh, command his pitches. Uh, you've mentioned, I know, head, wait, head knocking, head knocking? Head whack. Head whack, yes, head whack. There's uh, there's head violence. There's head whack. There's a, a couple different uh, uh, degrees of uh, of head stuff. But head whack is the most common usage. Right, and I remember you had showed me originally. This goes back to one of our, our first meeting, our first discussions along these lines. Lance McCullers whacking his head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not not into a door, but in no, the air. No, right, yeah, as he was pitching. Uh, and those are things to look for. But either I mean, are there some elements of command where? You're just never going to get it from one look because like maybe like a batter's plate discipline, it's just something you need to watch a bunch of reps to really see that reveal itself. I should first note when you said never going to get it, I could only think of that salt and pepper song. <laughs> yeah, right. Wait, oh, uh, might be in vogue, huh? Uh, maybe you're right. You can Google that while I'm talking. Okay, yeah, please go um, yeah, so it commands another one. It's of confirmed things. it's in vogue. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm so embarrassed. All right, all right go ahead. Um, Wait, what was the name of the DJ for Salt and Pepper? I've ever had she had a funny name. Uh, well, there was Salt and Pepper, and then uh, didn't they all die? <laughs> DJ Spinderella. I just got yeah. all right. I knew. I knew. It was all right, stupid. stop. We're getting. We're getting. Yeah, in. sorry. Okay. Um, so you're never gonna get it. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. So command. I guess like all these tools that we found uh, has sort of some elements to it. So obviously, you look at the arm action is the first thing. If there's length to the arm action, that means there is like a higher margin for error for repeating it. Um, and typically, ideally, the sort of athletic loose guy has a more compact, smooth, fluid, repeatable arm action. And the less athletic guy, I think Matt Albers, is uh, the longer arm actions tend to go over there. And so you're hoping you get a bigger, stronger, athletic guy, loose, uh, repeatable arm with sort of a smaller circle. Obviously, the arm tends to move faster and the ball tends to go harder if it's moving the same distance in a smaller amount of time. So if you can make the circle smaller, it's traveling that same distance from your hand to the loaded position, but it's doing it quicker, uh, which is sort of the math of, uh, like I remember uh, way, way back in the day, one of the first gift guys on the internet, Carlos Gomez, who's now a scouting director, uh, was writing about Matt Cain, uh, about how quickly he goes from ball in the glove to ball out of his hand, and that that actually... Uh, speeds up his fastball, likely, uh, because the the arm is moving so fast just because of the way he sinks everything, maybe even faster than if he's just sort of playing catch compared to other pitchers. Anyway, so that's a big part of it. So if a guy's got a really long Matt Albers arm action, almost none of those guys are, you know, one, two, or three starters, uh, which 
I'd say Ubaldo Jimenez might be the best example of a bad arm action guy that had good enough command, but he also was an enormous stuff guy when he was in his sort of heyday. So you have that. You'd like to have the body and the command all line up. You obviously want to have a low effort delivery that's repeatable. And then there's sort of that intangible thing like there is with all of these tools where some guys tick all those boxes and still just don't know where the ball's going. Like they just don't have, uh, they just don't have feel, uh, sort of for the arm slot. There's, I remember I've talked about with like, uh, like Vogelbach. It's like, uh, or DJ Peterson, some of these sort of fat first baseman type guys. They aren't necessarily football athletes, like size, speed, strength guys as a combination. They could maybe only play one position in the NFL if that. But in the batter's box, they are loose and athletic and they have quick hands and they're, uh, you know, strong in sort of their forearms. Like there's like a short area of baseball quickness, uh, and baseball athleticism. And so you'd like your pitcher to some of them are big and strong and, you know, look good in uniform and all that kind of thing of the right arm action, but they don't have that sort of short area baseball quickness and athleticism. And so repeating the little movements, uh, over and over, uh, like their arm slot and all that sort of thing can be a problem. And then that's usually what, like the, the thing you can't see until you slow the delivery down and notice the slot's different or he'll kind of fly open a little bit. It's just sort of having feel for your body and body control. That's kind of the last intangible thing. But typically if they have everything, they're probably going to have that too, much like if when we're talking about bat speed and looseness and all that. If you look like Byron Buxton, you swing like Byron Buxton, you have 80 bat speed and all that sort of stuff, you're probably going to have bat control too. So it's unusual to have all everything and then not have that. There's a, uh, there's a high correlation between those skills, we think. Which is why you keep seeing, uh, you know, when you'll read a prospect list and it'll be like, oh, the, you know, Pirates drafted, you know, three guys that were all 6'4", 190, and super projectable and were quarterbacks in high school and all throw a 90 to 92. And for all we know, they could throw a 98 and then one of them turns into Tyler Glass now. It's like, yeah, there's a reason why. It's because of all these little things. You see guys on the internet talk about like, oh, well, this 5'11 pitcher throws 95 in high school and, you know, why is he so underappreciated? It's another one of those things where it's not often does that guy do everything else so well to make up for being short and the taller guys, especially when you have a couple short season teams where you can kind of throw them down there and, you know, just sort of see what sticks. Those guys are way more likely to turn into a guy that actually matters, uh, whereas the short guy a lot of times works out and then just becomes a waiver claim in his third year anyway. Uh, whereas if those you sort just, of pirate ticket big guys, those are the ones you want to you want to stick with. If you just went around to large like suburban high schools and um, just drafted or signed the popular kids, <laughs> I mean, is this what it's what I mean? Is you know, in like a that's a, how we would keep them from working at a movie theater after high school, like they always do in TV shows and movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and I'm not talking the kids who are popular because they have all the good drugs. I'm talking about the kids who are popular because. They just, you know. Because they say no to drugs? <laughs> well, maybe, I don't know what their status is, is, apropos drugs, but I know that they're good at, they're probably good at all the sports, is my point. So you mean like the, the, the Letterman jacket quarterback dating the high school cheerleader kind of thing? Yeah, precisely, yeah, yeah. A, uh, right, a sort of flattened uh, view of high school. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that, I mean, there, there's a lot to be said for, to, for that. that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times the, uh, the, ooh, look out for this guy from a draft class, is often the, oh, he played like six different sports and then picked up a ball in some side session that our scout heard about and, uh, threw it to the moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We call him the wonder bat or whatever. Yeah. 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 There's, I, the funny thing is there's probably much like I said that the, when you turn 18 in the Dominican, you're considered old and there's, pl- there's probably a dozen, if not more, like big leaguers that were never signed because they were seen as too old. 
uh, for a various number of reasons, like getting visas and all that kind of thing. It's easier to sign a random junior college guy than to sign the Dominican guy. There's probably a big leaguer that never made the big leagues because he never actually played baseball, or he did and no one was paying attention. There was a guy that played high school with me that uh, played like half of one season his senior year after all the teams had already put out their scholarships that got a scholarship to go play at USF, which is like, you know, pretty legit division one school. And he was like, no, nah, I'm going to go to dental school, go hang out with my friends, you know, go to a big college. Uh, don't really want to. And he probably wasn't a big leaguer, but I imagine there's a handful of those guys every year that are seniors in high school and every metropolitan area guarantee a few of them are big leaguers. And obviously, I know Bill Simmons always talks about how Allen Iverson would have been a superstar in any sport he wanted to play. And people talk about with soccer, uh, you know, which one of our athletes would be good at soccer and what if the whole country played one sport? Would we be as unstoppable as, you know, look at Germany's like, or Brazil, like we'd have sort of more infrastructure and more athletes than they do. What if we played just one sport? Would we be able to crush them in that sport or do we like having, you know, five or six or eight sports that we, that we play? So. Yeah, that was a long, long answer. No, 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 it's uh, yeah, relevant though. All right, let's talk about well, let's talk about another foreign country, not Germany, not Brazil, Cuba, and we're going to no, talk thanks. about. I'm, Man- I'm all Cuba out, guys. You're done. You, Mancada, Mancada, Mancada. I have actually been told it is pronounced Joan. Yeah, that makes sense. Actually, I can tell you something. I don't know if you know this, but um, oh no, uh, and we might have heard, we might have caught wind of it. Uh, from that documentary watched about uh, Levon and Orlando Hernandez, although we maybe did not. There are, of course, a number of uh, Cuban athletes uh, whose names begin in Y. Yes. Uh, Juana Cespedes. Uh, yes, Mani Tomas. Yes, Mani Tomas. Basically all of them, actually, who have Yaziel Puig. Yeah. <laughs> you can just think of basically any of them, and it'll turn out that their name starts with a Y. Right. Uh, um, the history of this – I'm sorry if you've heard this before, but maybe the one listener hasn't. Uh, the history is that they're known as Generation Y. Uh, it's a generation of uh, Cubans who were born at a time during uh, or during at a point when the Cuba was receiving a lot of aid from the Soviet Union, um, and uh, Cubans were taken with a lot of the uh, the Russian names, which of course a lot of those. Uh, which explains Alexei Ramirez as well. Right, so you do find, yes, you, you find uh, Russian names or at least names that begin with Y in Cuba from a certain generation of of, uh, of Cubans. And I believe Yonder Alonso is of Cuban descent as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so it's, uh, I mean, really don't need many more examples. That's a lot of Y names already. Why? People people are asking why, but in That's, a different way. Right? Yeah, they are, right. Um, so there you go. And so that that uh, also applies to what we call Joan or Joan. How do you say How are you saying I've heard it? Joan. I, th- I think it's some version of that, yeah. Let's say Joan Mancada. Sure. You want to say that? Let's I just, know I'm going to be wrong. But let's just I'm call sh- him Mancada for the duration of this episode. Much easier. We know, we know that's right. Right. I've also right. heard Mancada, but sorry, go ahead. Mancada, right. Okay, so you've read, what, two or three posts now? At least two posts directly. Uh, three. There was one when he was missing, uh, but it was on a couple topics. Uh, the second one was he had just had the workout, and then I just had one that was about him, but about half of it was about the rules r- regarding his uh, bonus and whatnot, which mm-hmm. has, have become a a point a lot of people were asking about, sort of like, oh, yeah, wh- where does that money go? And no one really knew the answer. I was like, somebody should know this answer, and it turned out the results will shock. You. Yeah, the results sh- uh, shocked this podcast host. Um, <laughs> all right, so first of all, a basic bullet point summary. 
he was he's Cuban, so he was in Cuba. Uh, he surfaced at a later date in Guatemala. He had a tryout, or not a tryout, but I guess a uh, showcase. A showcase, a one-man showcase. Actually, it was two two men. There's also a guy named Carlos Mesa that's with him, but he probably won't get very much money. Okay. Oh wait, so Car- is Carlos Mesa is Carlos Mesa subject to all the sort of strange privileges that Mancada is as well? I think so. No one's really been asking about him because it sounds like he's not that good. But I, yeah, I don't know if he's a hundred thousand dollar guy or a thousand dollar guy or a four hundred thousand dollar guy. Just no one's paying attention to him, so I haven't bothered asking. Okay, so the weird among the weird things uh, with regard to the situation is that. He was allowed to leave Cuba, it seems. Yes, it has uh, been, for all intents and purposes, confirmed. I haven't tried to call the Cuban government. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they would answer me, and they definitely wouldn't answer me in a language I could understand. Mm-hmm. But, yes, it's it's been essentially confirmed that that is what happened. Okay. Uh, that's curious. I mean, is there any precedent? Because I know I, the one thing no. I liked about your conversation of, was it OFAC? OPAC? OFAC, yeah. OFAC, o- OPAC right. is the oil people. Right, OFAC. The, the OFAC... Uh, they're, they're essentially, that's the government agency which what which clears uh, which gives visas. Yeah, it's the Office of Foreign Asset Control. So mm-hmm. it's when when someone's uh, going from sort of not being allowed in to being allowed in, they sort of make sure everything's in order. Right, and there are political motivations uh, sometimes or all of the time, but some sometimes they're more. Also, important. it's technically run. <laughs> It's run by the government, which is also what the DMV is run by. So, <laughs> and some stories I've heard from people that have had to deal with them is that there are a stunning amount of similarities to the DMV. <laughs> uh, is it possible that if you are a, a high-level athlete and then uh, there are also muddied, muddied people have an interest in you, that is it expedited at that point? I and mean, does it seem to be an indi- indication there it is? The, I don't think it necessarily is. That's one of those things that agents use to recruit these players and that teams will use to their advantage if they have an in with a, you know, they went to high school with a senator or something like that. If somebody rattles, again, imagine this is happening in the DMV and it's, you know, 50 people that are trying to clear 300 people, uh, and, and you're just kind of going through your day, you know, and then some senator calls somebody, it calls your boss and it's like, this needs to get done now. Stuff like that gets it to speed up, but just because he's going to get a lot of money and he's in the news doesn't mean it's necessarily going to get sped up. It's more a function of did they happen to you know, draw the right time when there's not a ton of stuff going on right now? Did they draw a person that's focusing on their case that is particularly diligent? Is the agent being very good about staying on top of them because – uh, there's many stories of them people sending in stuff and then it getting lost and then having to send it in again, but it was the only copy they had, and then you redundantly fax in another copy. Like, it's a lot of that kind of thing. So if the agent's maybe got one person in his employee that just full-time deals with all the paperwork garbage, uh, it's it's sort of like arbitration. It's not complicated. It's just time-consuming. Right. So well, it was the reason I brought that up, though, was because – uh, from the you know the U.S. point of view, there's OFAC, there's a government agency which overview you know oversees this. I'm curious, is there any precedent though that you know of? And I'm uh, this might be uh, stretching your body of knowledge, which is fine. You could say so, where a Cuban person has just been allowed to leave, and that's it, and also is allowed to return. I guess we're getting into the area where I know some stuff that I can't say. Just okay. yet, yeah. Um, but but like, uh, like, is there like, like a, a guitarist who's been allowed to do that? Yeah, I do not think there has been a high-profile example 
of this. Uh-huh. It sounds like there have been low-profile examples of this, which obviously would be hard for me to uncover the details of, and right. then also try to use that to draw, you know, uh, some sort of example. Because maybe the last one was 10 years ago. Uh, so what does that mean for today? Probably right. nothing. Um, so, yeah, you'd, you'd like to think that OFAC could tell us or that the you know agent or the teams or whatever would know that oh it's going to go two months longer because of his unusual circumstances and this is how long it would have taken if he you know just defected normally and this is how long it's going to take it's a lot of as i said dmv level stuff going on so uh i'm sure there's an appointment when they're supposed to go to some office to do such and such and then it gets pushed back and then it gets moved up and then they ask for an exception and like i'm sure that's what's happening right now okay all right um now He's going to get a lot of money, we we think. Yeah, yeah, he is. Okay. Um, um, do you, you want me to throw my guess out now? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, we'll use it as a yeah, as like an anchor. Uh, my guess is it's going to start with a four. Okay. A four. A four. A four. For for the bonus, we'll start with a four, which would mean the penalty will also either start with a four or be in the high threes, which okay, would mean right. it's around eighty million. Is, is sort of my guess. Right, and uh, if that happens before July second, it seems like it could possibly happen July second. Uh, two teams that will not be allowed to pay that much money are the Cubs and another team. It's the Red Sox, maybe. Rangers. Uh, Rangers. This is something yes. I, I answered in the comments because uh, in comments for articles like this, I believe the, the second of the three articles has like 130 comments on it. Mm-hmm. Um, people are. It, it draws a different level of commenter, mm-hmm. so there were so there were a lot of people like, "Oh, the Rangers should just offer this guy two hundred million dollars, and then they'll get him." Of course, they'll wait for that. And and somebody asked in a semi-serious tone, like, "Oh, well, can't the Rangers just offer him more money, and then he'll wait and he'll sign with them?" And I was like, "Well, look at it from the agent standpoint. Ignore the agent's background that he is another wrinkle of this is that he's never done a baseball contract before, and he's a CPA from St. Petersburg. Ignore that completely. Let's imagine it's Scott Boris doing this." You've got the Yankees and Red Sox that can bid right now uh, that are both mad that with sort of the luxury tax and essentially having hard caps in the draft and uh, about to in, uh, go over their penalties for July 2, which means they can't go over $300,000 for the next two years in a row, they're sitting on a pile of money they're not allowed to spend, essentially. And this guy is maybe the best 19-year-old in the world, and they're, be- and they're being told, oh, to get this guy – and to make sure the Yankees or the Red Sox, the, the competition, don't get them, all it takes is money. That's it. The thing you have an unlimited amount of. <laughs> and you guys get to compete with each other, along with also probably a couple other teams that are lying in the weeds that have the revenue to do this. Like, say, for instance, the Angels, who haven't done a lot internationally lately, just signed a Cuban guy for $8 million when their pool was like two. So they're now in the same position the Yankees and Red Sox are. You would think if they just signed a Cuban player for money that they weren't hadn't done in the past, they have obviously enormous revenues also, they could be in the mix for this also. So and there's also been some rumors that the Braves had an unusually big contingent, and they, I believe I talked about this last week on the podcast, they just basically kicked out the whole Frank Wren uh, um, experience and brought in the John Sherholtz experience, <laughs> the cover band, uh, which are the guys that sort of did the aggressive player development and scouting and, uh, you know, sort of laid the groundwork uh, for, for that whole dynasty run. And they seem to be, given their uh, motion so far, seem to be saying, well, we're okay with winning 78 to 80 games this year because next year and every year after we're going to be a dynasty. Like, we're going to put this thing back together. 
which would this guy would fit perfectly into that. And so it sounds like they're another dark road. And obviously you could say the Nationals, other teams, the Tigers that have this money could potentially get into play even if they don't typically spend money on July 2 because July 2 is 16-year-old guys that won't even be in America for three years that maybe the owner or GM just doesn't like that market. This is a guy that will be in the minors for a year or two max and could be the franchise cornerstone uh, right away and has, like, performed in front of all these international guys and is super physical. Like, this is a different kind of guy. So the July 2 track record doesn't apply anymore. Right. And so the problem with this being a different kind of guy is that there will be – well, it's not necessarily a problem. There's going to be a large tax levied against this bonus. The problem is, and this is sort of moving on to another point you make in your post, uh, that money is just going straight to the, the Major League Baseball, the office of the commissioner. And it, it what? It essentially, it's, it's, let's see. It's a really nice Christmas party. It's designed, I, there's like the, the language is like very. Yeah, it's very lawyerly. Right, yeah. Which is why I translated it just below. <laughs> right. It is essentially, uh, it will you be used like for well for what in, to offset international expenses, and also there's going to be some discussion of and then uh, uh they can then after that it's just at their discretion. Yeah, and they make sure to mention a draft which they don't, didn't need to, which sort of tips their hand that oh we don't expect this uh thing to have very much money in it the fund because it's just going to cover expenses. And we're going to mention a draft to point out that we don't think this thing's going to be around long enough that it's going to be possible to have that much money in because these rules are pretty good. No one's going to go over these rules. Look what happened in the draft. And then uh, if it turns out we're wrong, then, uh, yeah, just, just fold it in the international budget. They'll find somewhere to, to spend it. And, uh, yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the thing that uh, I wrote in the article. I asked, I think, 10, maybe 12 executives where this money was going. None of them knew, and the one that sent me that language also didn't know. He just looked it up and sent it to me. And I sat there and read it with him, and I was like, that means this money's going into an international draft, because it's pretty well known MLB wants an international draft. I detail sort of the reasons why this is the uh, suspicion in the article. Suffice it to say, everyone is aware of this, whether it's true or not, that's what everybody thinks. And and Bud Selig has talked about how great an international draft is for years, so even if the international people don't want to do this, it sounds like Bud and eventually his replacement and former right-hand man Rob Manfred would be on the same uh, thought process. So essentially, teams found some weaknesses in MLB's rules, and in the vacuum of where we can spend money with a positive ROI, it got funneled down into the international to we got to put this money somewhere. We could just sit on it and wait for a huge free agent, or we get some players out of it. And and so teams started doing that and doing it very aggressively. And it turns out that all that money they were spending aggressively to get players because they were scared a draft might be coming is going to speed up how quickly the draft is coming. Now, when you say when you say speed, like I I assume that having more money than less money is uh, that for that's going to help the office of the commissioner, Major League Baseball. But what precisely is it doing? Is it uh, is it I mean, is it just paying for lawyers basically, or is there some other benefit that? Because you estimated that maybe teams thought it, or the MLB thought it would be ten million. It's actually going to be something more like seventy million. So what is the benefit of that extra sixty million? Well, the the international draft. The reason it's been talked about for so long and hasn't happened is one. There's a lot of complications just dealing with third world countries and trying to organize countries that have either don't want to be or haven't been organized for, you know, understandable reasons in the past. You're also trying to take governments in the case of Cuba and Venezuela and at least the baseball 
part of Japan that don't want MLB to have unfettered access to their players or don't like the American government or some combination of both. Uh, also goes for Mexico, which is trying to keep its players from sort of being taken, which is why they um, typically will the, – the professional teams in Mexico will sign the players when they're like 14 and 15 and 16 so that they can't go to America without going through the team. And then the team keeps like 75% of the bonus um, or maybe not always that high, but at least 50 so there's a lot of complications there of you have to base, uh, international baseball has been basically uh, based the, the MLB offices are based in the Dominican. They've done a very good job uh, over the last three to five years, like organizing the country, getting the paperwork more standardized, making PEDs less of a problem, making age and identity fraud less of a problem and doing all those things, organizing prospect leagues, showcases, all that sort of stuff. They've done a good job on that. And presumably they think, oh, we did it here. We can do it in other places. The problem is the other big places are Venezuela and Cuba and Japan who don't want people doing that, either taking their players or if things need to be organized, they don't want it to be organized or some combination of those things. And so this money goes to personnel and travel and negotiations and bring in a fancy, you know, I don't know, Condoleezza Rice could be the one to get the Venezuela thing to go, but she needs to be paid well and all these sorts of things. And international is running up against the top of their budget, so we can't do some sort of super high profile. Like that sort of stuff is where it's at now. And so you can imagine if there's a fund that was supposed to have eight or ten million in it and six of that goes to expenses and then, you know, the rest of the extra million or two can go to this sort of stuff, that's fine. When you have in it had that $10 million after the first two years in the past. Uh, here, let me find the part in the article. So uh, in the last uh, six months, they may be getting uh, $50, 60000000 million. So like actually probably more like 50. But so that thing went from 10 to 20. Um, it got bigger. They had some things to do with it, but still not on a like, it wasn't like the, hey, everyone think of the craziest thing we could do, and we could do it. It wasn't that kind of money yet. Now <laughs> it's that kind of money. And I've heard, not directly, but through uh, some people that have conversed with MLB, that when they found out how much money Moncada's going to get, their reaction was, oh, we can do a lot of stuff with that money. Oh, this will be great. Ugh. And I know they have smart people there, and I know they have good intentions, uh, but the problem is all of these intentions have to get run through the very upper rungs of MLB, which is generally, when you're speaking of international baseball, out-of-touch old white guys. Uh, I, at one point, asked someone who was involved in these negotiations for you know, getting the international draft mentioned in the CBA and stuff, and he was in the room with a uh, half-dozen, eight people that were sort of making these decisions, and I said... Tell me about those people in the room. It was all old white guys. Mm-hmm. How many of them have been to the Dominican or a country like that in Latin America? And he sat there and thought about it and goes, none of them. And mm-hmm. I was like, it seems a little tone deaf to assume you can just organize a third world country, potentially, if people use the example of Puerto Rico, killing baseball altogether by the rules you enact, and literally no one's even been to the country before. There are people in the international department, obviously, that are you know more in touch with what's going on there. But when there's this amount of money and this amount of organization and it being a bigger part of the CBA, those people don't have say in this. This is the commissioner and the number two making these sorts of calls in coordination with owners who've never been down there and uh, owners who don't want to give money to their GMs that are asking for this money. They're like, no, no, we don't spend it down there. We don't spend it on those guys. We spend it, you know, on Prince Fielder, who's, you know, whatever. It's that kind of person that's making this decision. So I would like to think that the 
this influx of money making it from, uh, oh, we've got a couple extra million dollars, we can now do a little more of what we're doing, that this amount of money being introduced to it will turn it into an all-hands-on-deck, hey, that 25-year-old guy from Harvard that works in the office, what's your idea? That sounds crazy, but we got enough money, let's go do that. Like, that could actually be useful, and that could actually be the thing that needs to happen to uh, democratize within MLB the people that have something to do with the draft, which could actually help things or help them to find some sort of hybrid uh, version that isn't a draft, which I think would be the solution. But the clubs, so there's, so it's a difficult thing, right? And it's it, it's hard, I would assume, to write about it without uh, getting wordy, in the sense that you, because you say that the clubs, every club you've talked to is strongly against international draft, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the owners of those clubs are against it. Yeah, that, that I made sure to word it that way because it's. I'm not talking to owners. I should point this out. Right. <laughs> but yeah, the and way they're I, not and they're not talking to you. Yeah, not intentionally <laughs> at least. <laughs> um, yeah, it's important to point out that the I guess the way teams characterize it, the the scouts and executives, I think all the way up to GM and maybe even presidents, is we want sc- good scouting uh, to be rewarded. And while the old way 10 years ago was definitely wild, wild west and there was, you know, agent identity fraud and PED use and players like hiding teams, hiding players in their academies and a lot of underhanded stuff. But in general, the teams that spent the money and got the good players and did a good job were like they did good scouting. They got good players like it was it was a meritocracy. And because they did a good job, their owner gave them more money because they saw like, oh, we've got three starters on the big league team from this program. Go get more money. Let's get some more players. And that's kind of how it worked. And then slowly MLB has been putting in controls to sort of make it less wild westy and less sort of salacious stuff coming out of the media about this guy cheated whatever, which has been great, but it also is sort of moving towards this thing which MLB seems to sort of be their intention, which is to have July 2 starts in January and all the players sign in July. Everything before January is MLB-sanctioned showcases and games, and then between January and July, teams can kind of do their thing, have kids come to the academies, do all that stuff. And then we don't have early deals done. We don't have all that stuff. Maybe it's a draft. Maybe it's not. But there's hard caps on the money that's being spent. Like, that's kind of what they're moving toward, which is basically making it to where me going down there twice a year, going to the big showcases, I'd be seeing 60% of what some teams are saying, that you don't have to go be beating the bushes and going all over the country because for a kid to sign, he has to be registered. And if he's registered, then every team knows about him. And if he's registered and every team knows about him, he's going to go to the showcases. Like, there's no secrets anymore. And while there are good and bad parts of that, in general, it's not rewarding scouting because you can just show up to the big events and take notes and not have to go beat the bushes, which is traditionally what's happened there. And, and what about for the kids themselves? What's the best option for them, do you think? Well, when you put hard caps on bonuses, they get less money. Right. And when there's when they get when the top end guys get less money and there's hard caps, then there's less extra money slushing around for that hundred thousand dollar kid who probably never gets another payday because you have to, you I mean you have to get to the big leagues and more more accurately get to your fourth year in the big leagues to get paid. To get right. So most of these kids are getting you know the only money their family may ever get that's above sort of subsistence whatever. And when you put a hard cap on it, teams want to spend over $100 million, and MLB wants to put a cap on it and make sure it stays at, you know, 70 or something like that. Like, it's a, a pretty sizable amount. And some of that comes out of the very top end of the market where the very, very top guys will get 10 or 20% less. But those guys always get paid because they're the best players. I think it more gets felt in that middle and lower range where there's not as many four and $500,000 players. They turn into kids that want 500 because they know – 
that's what their talent warrants, and then they have to settle for a hundred or eighty-five or whatever it is later. Hmm. Well, uh, settling has at least been a big part of my life. I don't know about you. That's how I got here. Yep. There you are. <laughs> All right, Kylie. You are a person who has fulfilled his obligations. We did not talk about the Reds uh, that much, unless you count uh, Cuba. We talked about them a little bit. But yeah, they, we, they signed the Rolf Chapman and uh, Mauricio Iglesias, so I guess in a way. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, I was also pointing to the uh, the idea oh, of the communist. The, the, yeah, the communist. The though. communist part. Uh, but that's fine. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about Cincinnati next time. Maybe now we just we discussed Ben Lively, which I don't think suffices. We we need to talk about Jesse Winker probably at some point. And are you going to mention my joke about Jesse Winker's uh, the best big league fit for him? No, I don't remember it. Sorry. I, I, I said he should play for the Red Sox because people could talk about no man Winka. Winka. Oh, yeah. Winka. Are you doing Winka? Which well, is from Orlando, so I'm not sure he would be into that. But no, maybe anyone when, getting their name yelled in a positive fashion should be in favor of it, right? Yeah. Well, maybe when he visits. When he visits Boston. I mean, you, you know, if he does make it to the major leagues, as you say, if he makes it to year four in the major leagues, he'll have, uh, he'll have, uh, you know, in, income he can spend. Yeah, wink up fin, fin to get paid. Yeah. All right, you're done, though. Yeah, cut me off. All right, you're done. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Kyler. Why don't you stick around for one second? In the meantime, though, uh, thank you for joining us. Sure. Yeah, that's Kyler McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst. Lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>